Hello everyone, welcome to the Melting Pot Podcast. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is as a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance, scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions along the way. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a high-quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at dominicmonkhouse.com. Today, I'm talking to Aga Bayer, and I came across Aga's work when she interviewed a good friend of mine, Barnaby Lashbrook, and they had a great conversation on her podcast, The Culture Lab, about how he's built the culture at his business time, etc. Aga's a practitioner. She used to work for big global consultancy businesses in the HR space, and now she is focused specifically on culture. We talk about fear and psychological safety, and we talk about vulnerability. And then we get into some books that she recommends and definitely one episode in her podcast that she thinks, given the context of today's discussion, that people should really start with. So I had a great conversation this morning with Aga. Uh, I was in Salisbury and she was in Milan. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Cheers. My name is Aga Bayer. I'm a culture strategist and I help companies and teams around the globe to cultivate a culture that brings their vision to life. I'm also a co-author of a book called Building and Sustaining a Coaching Culture and the creator and host of a podcast called The Culture Lab. Fantastic. And why do you do you know, the book, the podcast, the work that you do? What brought you to here? Why, why is culture the thing that you're that you focused in on? It's such a great question. And I think, you know, when I go back and think about my life and what brought me to this point, it probably goes back to where I grew up and how I grew up because I was born and I was brought up in Poland in the 70s and in the 80s. And that was a sort of time in that part of the world, you know, it was behind the Iron Curtain. So it wasn't really safe to speak openly about the stuff you believe and the stuff that you were passionate about. So we lived in this culture that was really, people were seeped in this very um, negative, hopeless environment. And one of the very vivid memories that I have is of my mother burning her journals. And that was immediately after the um, military, you know, regime started in 1981. And she was burning her journals because someone gave her a heads up that the SB, which was the Polish secret police back then, they will search our house. And so, of course, she was terrified that, you know, something terrible would happen to us because we've seen actually neighbors disappearing and never coming back. And so I 
clearly didn't enjoy growing up in that sort of environment. And I clearly didn't enjoy seeing my parents going through what they were going through. And it really made me angry. And I decided to rebel against it, but I didn't know any safe way to do it. So what I did was I escaped into the world of fantasy and the world of books. So I'd climb trees and pretend that I was a pirate girl going on amazing adventures, you know, and then reading like a maniac, anything that I could put my hands on, literally. And it happens to be a lot of actually English and American literature. But I haven't come uh, to real contact with people from the West until the 80s. And what happened then, and that was a sort of transforming moment for me, was that my friend Wojtek and I, we participated in a summer camp that was organized by UNESCO. And the purpose of the whole camp was to introduce us to the culture of Great Britain. And, you know, when I think about this today, I'm really wondering how is that possible that the Polish government would allow for those things back in those <laughs> times, right? Because, um, well, I don't know, maybe they were hoping that they would be uh, able to train us later and become spies or something because you have to know your enemy, right? But I participated in that camp and I noticed that people were different and they made different assumptions and they had different expectations from us. And I realized that when people expect different things from you and perhaps more, then you start expecting more from yourself. And when you start expecting more from yourself, you start acting differently. And of course, when you start acting differently, right, you accomplish different things and basically you redefine what's possible for you. So I guess it was the first time in my life that I realized that culture is really powerful. I didn't call it culture, by the way, back then, but I realized that the environment in which you operate is really critical to what's possible for you. And I think since then, basically, when I look back, my life was this constant pursuit of finding ways of helping others to create that environment where people can flourish and grow and achieve incredible stuff. Okay, what an amazing story. I understand the history, but, you know, then it's just so recent. You know, the, the fall of the Iron Curtain really is so recent. And uh, so what, what did you then go and do? How did you get from Poland realizing that culture was so powerful or the cultural differences were so powerful to, you know, what you do now based in Italy and, and consulting around the world? Yeah, it's been a little bit of a journey in terms of trying really to figure out what I wanted to do and, you know, what would be a way to sort of fulfill that wish of mine to create that environment for people. And the first thing I did uh, was I started teaching English. And I realized that that can be quite a powerful way to create sort of environment for people. So generally teaching, that was my first job. I was still a student and I was teaching English in a private school back then, which was called Wonderland. And I'm still in touch with the owner of the company, actually. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience. And I realized that, you know, what you can do is you can literally change people's lives through that. I remember a boy, his name was Wokash. He was kind of a scruffy thin boy with uh, eyeglasses. I think he had a lazy eye. He wasn't very popular, but he was very determined to learn really good English. And then he really mastered the language. It was incredible. He couldn't speak 
a word. And then he was fluent in English over two or three years that I was working with that class. And what I noticed is how, you know, what impact it had on his confidence and sort of spending in, in class and so on. Um, so I thought, yeah, that's a piece that's interesting for me. But I realized I didn't really want to teach necessarily. And at that point in time, a friend of mine, by strange coincidence, <laughs> named Wukash again, he wanted me to work for him. And he was basically creating a startup. It was a company that he decided would produce ice cream at an industrial scale. And he needed someone who spoke languages and um, basically someone to help him. And initially I said no. And he approached me again and I said no again, and then again and again and again. And eventually I just gave in. And so I joined his company. And this was the first time that I was really introduced to business. And I realized I liked certain aspects of doing business, but not all of them. And so then I wanted to figure out, is there a way to put those things together? So, you know, teaching and helping people grow and develop with the business aspect of life. And it wasn't such a straightforward journey. So then my next experience was sales and being a sales director in a company, in a cosmetic company. And that was in Greece. <laughs> What's going on there? Well, I'm just fascinated. You go from, uh, you go from teaching English to into a startup and then sales director for a cosmetics company in Greece. It's just so cosmopolitan. <laughs> yeah, there's a love story there. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I moved to Greece because I met a guy and I fell in love. And I think for me, it was a really great opportunity to leave the country because I realized I didn't really like what was going on in Poland back then. It was the early days of freedom and democracy. And there was such a huge drive for people and companies to succeed financially and such amazing focus on making money. And that was not something that I really resonated with. So I was happy to leave that situation and go somewhere else. And I ended up in Greece. Yeah. And then I ended up in sales. And then I convinced my company that instead of having me as a sales director, they should make me the L&D director. So learning and development director. <laughs> And eventually, after some time, they said, okay, let's do it. And then I became a consultant. I joined Hay Group in Greece, which is now Corn Ferry, one of the huge consultancies in human resources. Uh -huh. And then I joined PwC. And then eventually, I established my own business. Fantastic. What a great journey. And now you're in Milan in Italy. That's right. Yes. So what's the, what's the best place you've lived? Is it Milan? Are you, you, you happy in Milan or is there another place where you go, God, that was a great place to live? Yeah, yeah. I have to say I loved all the places I lived in. It's really true. I don't just mean to say that to make anyone feel nice. So I definitely loved Greece. And I have to say that probably now I feel 51% Greek and maybe only 49% Polish. And the reason is that my better half is Greek. So, uh -huh. you know, I really love the culture. The country is amazingly beautiful. We then moved to Cyprus for a while, which is um, a Greek speaking country, but a separate country, an independent country. And then eventually to Italy. And of course, you know, no need to advertise Italy. It's an amazing place to live in as well. So it's hard to say which is my favorite place, really. It's really hard to say. What made you decide to leave corporate world and set out on your own? I think I eventually decided that it was time to overcome my fear. 
there's a little story that I can share if you'd like me to about how that happened. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I was, you know, I was discussing actually my next promotion with my boss at PwC back then. And then I left uh, for a trip in Africa and was something that I was dreaming about for many, many years. And so we were near like Myanmar in, in Tanzania uh, with my husband. And we had this amazing Maasai guide. His name was Meli. And he was showing us around and telling a story about the life of Maasai and how he combines you know, modern life with the traditional life. We sort of became friends in, in those couple, three days or two days that we were there. And one morning I woke up and I was eating breakfast and he came up to my table, almost running, very excited. And he said, would you like to see something? And I said, yeah, what? And he said, well, come follow me. So I called my husband and we went there together and there was a zebra sort of half eaten by a lion. And we realized that we could hear her cries at night as the lion was attacking her and killing her. And it was pretty dramatic. And so we were standing there and Melly told us, you know, the lion can come back anytime, basically, because they always, they never leave good food just out there. So it can always come back. And I was standing there and I realized that I didn't feel any fear whatsoever. You know, and it was literally a life-threatening situation where a lion could come and eat me and I didn't feel afraid. And I started laughing and my husband was standing next to me and he says, what's going on? You know, are you having a nervous breakdown or something? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, do you know what? I just realized I have to leave my company because the only probably reason at this stage in time that I'm still there is that I was afraid to uh, set up my own business. And I realized this fear is not real and I definitely shouldn't let it drive my life. So I quit and here I am today. And how long ago was that? That was almost two years ago now. Uh Are the projects you're doing with clients now similar to the ones you were doing with Corn Ferry and PwC or have you got a different type of client, different type of engagement? Yeah, so at the moment, I focus only on helping clients with their culture, whereas where I was with PwC and Corn Ferry, we had a broader portfolio of projects and client assignments. So we were doing a lot of stuff around leadership development and coaching and even job design and job descriptions and stuff like that, Um, a little bit of strategy as well. And at the moment, our focus is on helping clients cultivate a sort of culture that will help them thrive and help achieve the results that they want. So clients are not necessarily different always, but I think, you know, the demographics perhaps are the same, but psychographics are different, if that makes sense. Yeah. You're only, you're, you can only work with people who, who already understand the value of culture. Exactly. That's exactly right. And I think that, you know, in a lot of companies that work with huge consultancies and they have this need for, you know, the stamp of the big brand, very often, unfortunately, the reasons behind undertaking any sort of organizational development work, but particularly culture work, is just to tick a box very often and be safe. So they don't necessarily always mean to create change or drive change. Whereas I think the clients that I work with, I'm lucky to work with, they are ready and they do understand the value. And what's your definition of culture? 
Oh, so good that you asked me about that because I have a sense that a lot of definitions of culture out there really focus on the very superficial uh, level of what culture is. I mean, the most popular definition of culture that we know is uh, the way things are done around here, right? And I'm not saying that this is not culture, but it's the visible manifestation of culture. But the problem is, you know, that Titanic didn't sink because of that tip of the iceberg. It sank because of what was under the water. And I think that a lot of organizations have this issue that they don't look deep enough at their culture. So to my definition of culture, I think that culture is a form of intelligence, a little bit like AI, only that it's not artificial intelligence, you know, and it comes spontaneously to life when a group of people come together and share similar circumstances, whether it's work or whether it's family or whether it's a hobby or a community. Basically, what culture does as this form of intelligence, it gathers and analyzes data and information about what are the rules of survival and the rules of for well-being and thriving in this particular setup. And the moment it sort of establishes that, okay, this is it, this is what the rules are, it drives behaviors and it ensures that people adhere to those rules. Um, so it's a little bit like collective programming of the mind, really. And I'm not clearly the first person who talks about this in that way. Hofstede, a very famous Dutch researcher of culture, first spoke about culture being collective programming of the mind. It's funny, as you talk about it there, there was, uh, there was a thing in the, on the BBC, which I saw, which was that when the border went up between Germany and the Czech Republic, the border, when the Iron Curtain came down, went through a forest and separated two herds of red deer. And they put, some, they put some GPS trackers on it. So the border was nothing at the beginning and then ended up being electrified fences. And then over time, it's been taken down. 30 years since the electric fences were up, the two herds of red deer still don't cross the border. But we are now at least two generations away from anyone, any of those deer ever having seen the border. You just get that, you know, at some level, there's sort of behaviors that get ingrained in us in animals and, and us as people, that that whole programming of the mind, that people don't even question uh, anymore why things are the way they are. Exactly. I love this story. And I, I haven't actually heard of this one. I've heard other stories involving animals as well, restless monkeys and, and so on and so forth that have a similar message. Um, and clearly with people, yeah, absolutely the same thing happens. And you're so right that we stop questioning those things. We stop questioning why it's happening. And I think this is dangerous. And unfortunately, very often it's completely unconscious. We're not aware of it. We cannot see it. And yet it still drives our behavior, just like with a deer. And so when you go into a client, what are you typically doing? The client, you, you work with a client who sees the value in culture, but it, for them, is it, is it broken? Are they trying to get it? Are, they, are you doing sort of good to great rather than break to fix? And how do you, how do you go about helping a client change or get better? So I've noticed, and this, of course, may be different for other people who work with culture, but in my case, most of my clients, and this is why I talked about the psychographics. So for most of my clients, it's um, more about going from good to great. So they realize that there is value in culture and in culture work, and they have ambitious plans to grow and um, to expand or simply to achieve more 
you know, as they define it by their definition of success. And they know that culture is the lever. And so they reach out to work together. And very often it is driven by the CEO, I have to say. So very rarely do I have clients who HR director trying to drive change without having the, you know, the buy-in of the top man in the organization. So I think that's one of the success factors in, in our work as well. Yeah, it's very difficult to drive. You can build the culture in a team, but there's going to be so much that bleeds across from the the organization. And if the CEO and will the CEO cast such a long shadow, right? Particularly if they've been tenured for some time, that the organization starts to behave like the CEO and the leadership team. Absolutely. I've had this story, you know, and I don't remember, unfortunately, in Sipiti, who it was, but there was a story about a CEO who broke his leg while he was skiing and the dress code in his company was pretty formal. So people would wear suits and ties, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And because he broke his leg and of course it wasn't a cast. So he started wearing sneakers with his suits. And after a while, it took just three weeks or something like that. He noticed people wearing sneakers with their suits (laughs) and he said, what's going on here? And people said, well, we saw you doing that and uh, wearing sneakers with suits and it looks cool. So we thought it's okay to do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit of a funny example, of course, but there are so many other and it's so, so true. Oh, I, you know, that's just definitely one of those things below the waterline, isn't it? Because that wasn't a, that wasn't a rule change. It was just, it was just observed behavior that nobody would written down and then people copied it. You know, that's just a great story about how how culture just sort of permeates through and how unknowingly leaders can can change an organization for good or bad. Totally. That's why that's why I like to think about this as a form of intelligence, because it's really not set in stone and it continuously analyzes data and information, right? So it's almost like the third entity there. So that that's how I envision that. That is a true, you know, you cannot see it, but it's there, it definitely exists and it's scanning everything. And I think when it scans the environment and what's happening, it sort of magnifies what leaders do. So that's why that shadows of leaders are usually larger than shadows of other people in the organization. And so what types of stuff do you do inside an organization to help an organization improve its culture? So the first thing that we do is to start talking about culture explicitly. Because I think a lot of organizations do stuff to either shape their culture or improve their culture, but very often they will not talk about it. So it's almost like, you know, taking the water down a little bit and showing people the iceberg Mm. first and saying, do you know what, there is this thing here and it really has a huge impact on what's happening in your team and, you know, in, in how easy or difficult things are for you at the moment. And we want to understand it and we want to study it and see what are our real strengths and how then to leverage those, but also to figure out what are the sort of things that we need to update. Because again, for me, using this, this intelligence metaphor, it's a little bit like, you know, our companies really run on an operating system and culture is this operating system. So we help clients figure out what their operating system is and see what version they have. Sometimes they have Windows 98, you know, (laughs) and, and they are in 2019. So they need an update. And in most cases, they need a little bit of an update, a little bit of debugging there. So 
as I said, we first start talking about it explicitly and we use approaches and tools to help clients see it in detail, study it and identify it. So we're using a survey. We're also using a qualitative approach with interviews and focus groups and stuff like that. And we take a snapshot of culture in the moment. That's one of the first stages. And then, of course, you know, when you have a snapshot, it's really important to ask yourself, okay, so, you know, how would that have to change? And what is our ideal culture? So if we want to accomplish what we want to accomplish, what would it look like? And very often we first identify what are our must-win battles? So what are the sort of things that we will have to be successful with in our business in the next five years, let's say? And looking at these must-win battles, the next question is, okay, so what sort of culture would we need to get there? So you almost, you know, have this starting point and the direction in which you are going. And then clearly you need a compass to get to where you want to get. So we help them figure out what that compass would be and then how to chart the way towards the destination. And what if you got some examples of clients you work with where you could share some snapshots and and where they got to or where they are on their journey yeah absolutely one of the examples recent examples that i still have very fresh in my mind is a hotel chain and what they did is they started with a big diagnostic so they've run this diagnostic with a really large sample of their employees to see what's happening with culture at the moment. And the need for the project was that they were in growth mode. So it's a privately owned company. They wanted to manage many more hotels. It was a significant growth for them, for their size. And they realized that they will not be able to do this without looking at culture. And some of the things that we have identified through this diagnostic process was that, A, people said that the way we operate at the moment is we very often act out of fear and need for security. So psychological safety wasn't really there for everyone. And as a result of that, two things happen usually. Some people, and usually it's people who are higher in the hierarchy, will start behaving in an aggressive way. So it's almost like this alpha male kind of behavior and approach where, you know, because you are afraid and you want to look good and you want to look competent and you want people to believe that you have all the answers. So you puff yourself up and you become a little bit more aggressive. And of course, when that happens, there is a reaction to that. And a large part of the organization goes into the completely opposite mode, which is the defensive mode. It's very passive and people basically hide. They don't put their heads above the parapet and they try to figure out the safest ways to survive. Yes. And when we saw this, we realized that their first priority has to be to create that psychological safety for people in the company and also to show them in practical ways that it's not only safe to participate and contribute, but also this is something that is required and encouraged by the leadership and by the company. Yeah. And what do you do to drive that psychological safety in that company? Yeah, it's a great question. And there's 
been a lot of research um, that has gone into this and some of the um, people that are leading the way is um, Amy Edmondson from Harvard. I'm sure that you know her. And she recently wrote this book, The Fearless Organization. So it's a really good question. How do you create that psychological um, safety? There are so many important elements there. So I could talk about this for hours, right? But I'll try to, I'll, I'll try to um, give you just a couple of ideas that I believe are really effective. So the first thing that we notice that works really well is for leaders of the organization to give people a little bit of context and admit to what the snapshot of the culture has been and that they see how they might have contributed to those results. Um, so it takes courage and it takes vulnerability from the leadership team. And I find that if you don't have that, it's very, very, very difficult to turn this around. So again, you know, we go back to whether there is buy-in from the CEO and from senior leaders in the organization being a critical factor in our work. Because, you know, if there is no buy-in, clearly they will not stand in front of their team members, right? And say, guys, we have an aggressive and passive cultures going on in our company. And I can see now how we have contributed to that. And this is what I personally intend to change to drive a more constructive culture here. So yes. this is the first thing. It's extremely powerful when people do that, uh, extremely powerful. And we support leaders with coaching sometimes and a little bit of one-to-one -one work to sort of process everything because it's not easy. You get this mirror, you look into it, you see what, you know, some of the stuff you really hate, not just that you don't like it, but you really hate it. And then, you know, what do you do with it and how do you communicate it to your people? So that's one of the first important elements. And the way people are behaving, as we were saying earlier, it's not that it's conscious. It's just they're turning up and doing the thing they've always done. So now you're asking them to be more conscious. And when you do that, it's that sort of conscious, incompetent, you know, you're going to do it. It's not going to feel natural. Vulnerability. A lot of people struggle with vulnerability. It's not easy. It's absolutely not very easy. And, you know, there are, when, when we talk about culture, some of those beliefs and some of those assumptions are really rooted very, very, very deeply in uh, people's psyche. And there are values that people hold dear to their hearts. And with this particular client, it's a family owned business. So it's brother and two sisters. And one of the um, really important values for them was being really better than, you know, and the leader in the market and being definitely better than the competition and doing everything perfectly. And it might sound like a really good value to have, right? Of course you want to win. And of course you want to be better than your competition. And of course, especially if you are in the hospitality business, you want to do everything perfectly, especially if you are a luxury hotel chain like they are. But the thing is that, of course, this can create problems because when people are expected and required to be perfect, and perfection, as we, as, as we know, it doesn't really exist, then it creates a lot of insecurity and a lot of fear. What happens if I'm not perfect, you know, and what happens if I don't fit into the prescribed way of doing things? And it starts creating that dynamic of fear and of passiveness. Yeah. And then people go into, you know, fight or flight. And it's just stress goes up, fear, yeah, all of that. Brilliant. Thank you for that insight. Um, if I was to ask you 
to go back in time, knowing what you know now, is there a time or place where you'd say, oh, I wish, I wish I'd known that then? <laughs> where should I start? I have no idea. Well, one, one example from my personal life, I guess, personal slash professional, is that I wish that I realized earlier, you know, that I had this lion kind of moment. And I realized earlier that under no circumstances, I should let fear get behind the steering wheel of my life, you know, and that it's good to show up and be vulnerable and be brave at the same time. And nothing good generally in life comes out of hiding or being driven by fear. And interestingly, that really translates pretty well to organizations as well. So nothing good ever comes out from fear in organizations. This is, this is something that I've learned. This is something that I've seen with my clients. Um, so that's definitely one of the things that I would have. And does the fact that you see that in yourself, does that impact your coaching with clients? Because you're, you're able to see and empathize with the fear that they obviously have? I love this question. Thank you for asking it. And it just at this moment makes me realize that actually, yes. And actually I do ask uh, my coaching clients very often about their fears and we go there. And it's a very uncomfortable place to go, especially when you are a senior executive. And especially if you are a male senior executive, I've noticed that for women, it's easier because again, of those social norms to be vulnerable and to admit, yes, I'm afraid. Yes, I don't know how to do that. It's much more difficult for guys to do that. But you're right. I think that I take people there gently and when I feel that they are ready to go there. But nevertheless, I don't think that I would ever leave a coaching relationship without exploring that area of people's lives, especially professional lives because it's important they realize that definitely there is fear and it's important to realize how is this fear? How am I channeling that energy? Because it's just a form of energy and you can channel it in a positive way. So this is a big learning for a lot of clients that I work with that it's not about not experiencing fear. It's about acknowledging it and channeling that energy in a positive way. Okay, that's great. Remind me again, your book is? Building and Sustaining a Coaching Culture. Fantastic. So that is about, I guess, I'm getting, don't manage coach inside an organization? Yeah, this, this particular book is mostly addressed to um, human resources professionals. So it really looks um, at how to create that culture in a very um, sort of systemic way. So it's not a really practical sort of guide for a manager of how they can coach more. But the principle definitely and the philosophy of the book is definitely that management in the way that it has been done for the past decades, it's really, is completely irrelevant at the moment nowadays. So the only way to survive and not to mention to thrive is to create a space for people where they can be creative, where they can generate their own solutions to problems and reflect on their own. So yeah, coaching is one of the answers. Definitely not the only answer, but it's definitely one of the answers. It's fascinating, isn't it? When you ask staff, what makes a great manager? What they come up with is a list of things that are around coaching and not things that are around managing. It's all about support and encouragement and not about command and control. What other books along the way have 
made a difference to you or had an impact on you that you think other people should pick up? So I've mentioned already the Fearless organization and all the work that Amy Edmondson has done. I really value it. I think it's incredible and it's definitely been very informative for me in terms of how to create that safe space, that safe environment and for culture that is healthier and more constructive for people. But I think anyone really who manages a team should read it because there is a section in that book with very practical tips of what you can do as a leader to create a safe environment for your team. And I think it's important that people sort of figure out, of course, their own ways as well, but getting some ideas to get them started. Because I very often hear from leaders, you know, I don't know if it's a good idea to create an environment that's too safe for people because I'm almost afraid that if it's too safe and too comfortable, they will lose their motivation and they will not perform as well as I would like them to. So, yeah, so that's definitely one of the books that can bust that myth. Another one that has been life-changing for me is Mindset by Carol Dweck. And I don't know if you're familiar with it. No. But it's all about basically the premise of the book and the key message is that, you know, the predictor of success in our lives is not our innate talents. It's our ability to learn and improve. And it's a fantastic book for any parent or, again, any leader in an organization that shows how you can support others to develop this growth mindset. And there are things that we do every single day that actually undermine growth mindset in people, in our kids and so on and so forth. For example, saying, you know, you are so good at it. She argues that it can be very destructive and very bad for children because um, when you say you are so good at it, meaning that, you know, you are talented. So if a child tries something and they are not immediately great at it, they will simply decide that this is not their thing and not try again. So a better way of giving your child positive feedback would be to say, you know, I've seen that you've really tried hard to get it right. And that was really good effort. And this was done well. And this was really done well. I think that when you try a little bit more, even this could be better. So it's being sort of realistic and encouraging towards a child or your team member to put some effort into honing their skills, basically. Okay. That's great. I'll definitely look look out for that. Brene Brown, I don't think that she needs any introductions, <laughs> right? <laughs> so she would be another choice of mine. And her latest book, Dare to Lead, I think it's incredible. So I would definitely recommend. And I know that I've only mentioned women, so I have a guy. I know that um, it's, a, it's a long list already. But Reinventing Organizations by Lalou, Frederick Lalou. It's, it's yeah. an incredible book. Have you read it? Yes, I have indeed. Yes, yes. Yeah. And on your podcast, I'm putting on putting you on the spot here. But can you? What are some of the your favorite? Or if people were going to go and dive into one episode, one or two episodes, which ones should where should they start? Do you think this is really very hard to say, uh, indeed? And it's not because you put me on the spot, but I think that I was lucky enough to have amazing guests and really engaging guests. So it's really hard to say. But if I really had to pick, I think that I personally, but it's just a personal preference, I 
tends to lean towards practitioners. So people who are in the trenches and cultivate cultures as leaders or team members. So one of those people was Gary Ridge, the president and CEO of WD40. Uh An incredible, incredible leader. And what they do with their culture is just absolutely amazing and so inspiring. So I think that anyone who's interested in shifting culture in the organization should listen to Gary, either on Culture Lab or somewhere else, because he has stuff that will knock your socks off, you know, to share. And a lot of stuff that people can implement in their organizations as well. I get that's brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. Been a pleasure to talk to you today was my pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for inviting me. All this information and more can be found at dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find show notes, additional reading and links related to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of the Melting Pop newsletter. The simplest thing to do is to sign up to my subjectively, not crap, once a week newsletter, where I'll update you on what I've been up to, the most interesting articles I've read, and all things relating to scaling up, high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. Social, you can find me on Twitter at Dom Monkhouse and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse. LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me and share your questions and comments. Thanks for listening.